0: We will go ahead and open up to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning ready to open your word, praying that we're ready to hear your word, to hear you speak. God, may it root itself deeply within us. So that we would be like trees planted by streams of living water. God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word this morning and the ministry of your word this year. May we be found faithful. We ask your blessing on this time and that through the work of your spirit that you would speak to us So that we are not left unchanged. May our lives be radically transformed by the glorious gospel of the grace of God. And may our foundation be built upon your holy and sufficient word. Would you glorify yourself in our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned a while ago, last week we gave a brief glimpse into our desire. When I say our, I mean our desire as the pastors of New City. So our desires is for you as the people of New City who call New City home. Our desire for you going into the new year would be that your faith would be deeply rooted in the word of God, and that your lives would be spent passionately pursuing him. In, in the midst of all of the things that take our minds and our thoughts away from being founded and rooted on Christ and his word, may those things just fade away in this year. Last week, as we closed out the year, we spent our time in the book of Jude, a short epistle written by Jude, and it really acted as a launching pad of sorts for us to go into 2 Peter. So the, the gist of Jude is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 2 Peter is about us growing in grace, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And we begin today with Peter's greeting. Now, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer about 2 Peter. I told you that 1 Peter was probably one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. To see the transformation that God did in the life of Peter and to see how Peter Changed and and he became such a passionate proclaimer of the word of God. Um, with Second Peter, we we spent, uh, if I'm remembering right, roughly five or so weeks in sec, in First Peter. I don't know how long we're going to be in Second Peter. I haven't put any kind of schedule together, like blocking out. Like we're just going to go and. We're just going to see how the Lord leads this time. This will be a week-by-week walk, and so you'll know where we end today. You just read the next set of verses, and we'll just see where next week goes. Does that make sense? Peter's greeting. Today we're going to cover verses 1 and 2. And as we do that, I want us to remember this thought, that all Christians, that is all those who truly trust in Christ for salvation, all Christians must grow in the grace and knowledge of God if we're to live for the glory of God. We know that the glory of God is the main and the highest pursuit of every Christian, should be. Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. So if we're to find ultimate satisfaction in life, we only do that by giving God the ultimate ounce and totality of our glory. Everything we have is to be given for the glory of God. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 10, says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. All of life is meant to be spent for the glory of God. Our life is not about our families. Our life is not about our pursuits. Our life is not about our careers. Our life is not about what we can attain and what we can amass and what we can leave to those who follow. Our life is primarily about glorifying God. That is our whole purpose of being. Everything we have, all that we are, is primarily for the purpose of glorifying God. And if we are to do that, then we must know the God who we're serving. If we are to know the God we are serving, we need to know his word. It is inerrant, it's inspired, it's infallible, and it's sufficient for everything. So all Christians must grow in the grace and knowledge of God if we are to live for the glory of God. So this morning, Peter's greeting begins with the author. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, right off the bat, there's an oddity, right? It's Simeon Peter. Well, wait a minute, we, we know this to be Simon Peter. It's just simply an alternate spelling. They would do this quite often um, in depending on who the audience was, who they were writing, what language they spoke. This is the same Simon Peter that we know. Um, the name Simon Simeon Peter, Simeon, Simon, um, in the original Aramaic. So that's the language that they would have spoken, the original Hebrew people would have been speaking at that time. So that language in this area, that name literally means that God has heard. Which is in Extremely important to remember as we work through the whole book of 2 Peter. But we know this Simon, this Simeon, um, is also named Peter, which is Cephas in Greek, which means rock. That's the name that was given to him by Jesus. And, And the reason it's important to see the use of both of those names is because this is showing the reality that Peter has authority... And he has been reinstated as an apostle of Jesus, right? And what do you mean by rein reinstated as apostle of Jesus? Well, what happened at the end of the life of Jesus? He denied Christ. He went against everything he had been directly called by God to be an apostle, and he denied Christ. But uh, in his faithful work and his faithful following, you can read about it all through the Book of Acts, where he's preaching the gospel, he's leading the charge of the Christian church. He has been formally reinstated and acknowledged as a reinstated member of the apostleship of Christ Church. Now, says so Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus means that he is a messenger of God called directly by God through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus looked him in the face and said, follow me. There are a lot of people who claim to be apostles today, who carry the title of apostle. That is not correct. The act, the gift of being an apostle, that title was given only to a select few. They were directly called by Jesus to follow him. And and you might be saying, well, wait a minute now, Paul, Paul was an apostle of Jesus. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. It was a supernatural appearing, yes, but he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So, anyone who claims to be an apostle today, slightly misguided. That gift has ceased to be. Now, that name, that title. The gift of apostleship still exists, namely like in the form of being a pastor. It's someone who loves the people of God, who serves the people of God, who gives everything for the people of God to teach, to shepherd, to lead. So you still have the gift of apostleship, but the actual title of apostle is no more. But here Peter is saying, I am a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been called by him to do this work. Now, what is absolutely beautiful is this, that him being the same author of 1 Peter, being the one in Acts who is preaching on the day of Pentecost, where he is delivering the message that we just finished in 1 Peter, which was a message of, of steadfast pursuit, to steadfastly pursue God through difficult trials. There, They had been going through great persecution, remember? So go back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this are, these are Christians who have been dispersed because of persecution. They, they, are, they are being forced to leave their homes. They are being forced to leave their families because of their allegiance to Jesus. That was 1 Peter. He was writing to them to say, Listen, I know that you are going through the most difficult trials of life right now, but stand firm. Rest in Christ. Second Peter's a little different. And we'll get to that shortly. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Not only is he an apostle he's a servant. See, as an apostle, he has the authority to be the mouthpiece of God, to be a proclaimer of the word of God, to be a leader for the church of God, unlike most people. But yet he leads that title with the title of servant. Meaning that even as this authoritative figure in the church, he submits to one greater. He's not the top. He's acknowledging that he is simply a servant. That even though he's been given this authority as the mouthpiece of God, to be a proclaimer of God, he is first and foremost a servant of the one who is greater, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what he is telling us as he is presenting this letter to us is there is no difference between him and any other Christian. He has a different calling, but his faith is very much the same. Every child of God has a calling. And far too often we build certain callings up higher than others that shouldn't happen so there's a great lesson to be gathered even in this first simple line and it's this peter is saying that his status although it was important did not change the fact that he's ultimately a servant of jesus So, we are never to let our faith, which was a gift, be a source of sinful pride for us. Never can our faith be a source of pride. We should stand firm on our confession of faith, and we should boldly proclaim the truths of God, but never from a state of pride. It should always come out, a deep, out of a deep, sincere love and earnestness, knowing that those who die without Jesus spend eternity separated from him. So Peter, writing this letter, acknowledges that, yes, as an apostle of Jesus, he has authority, but first and foremost, he's a servant. So now that we know who's writing it, who's he writing it to? He's writing to Christians. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Those are the Christians that we've already heard about in 1 Peter 1. So again, go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. So this is those who have trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. It is those who have obtained a faith of what he says is equal standing. So he's referring to all Christians. So regardless of age, of gender, of ethnicity, of social status, it doesn't matter. He is speaking to all Christians. And we'll get to a little bit more of why this is important shortly. But what this tells us is that the Christian faith is the same for all who have been redeemed by Jesus. Yes, there are some Christians who are more mature in their faith, but their faith is still the same. Once we are saved, we are saved. We are to spend our lives passionately pursuing the glory of God. Growing in the grace of God in the process of sanctification. But once we are saved, we're saved. So Peter's trying to let them understand this, that we have a faith of equal standing. And this is the case because our faith is not our own. He says, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours... How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your faith is not your own. It was freely given to you through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Not by your work, not by your goodness, not by your merit, not by your service, not by your giving. Not by your attendance. By Christ. By the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the reality is, is we did nothing to earn it. And that goes against everything within our nature. Everything within us tells us that if I do this, I can receive this. That doesn't work with the gospel. Because as we know, Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. That means the best we have to offer. It's not enough. And it's not enough because it's stained by sin. The only way we can be redeemed from the curse of sin is through a perfect sacrifice becoming the curse for us. And that's exactly what Christ did. Again, hold right there in Second Peter. Go to Romans chapter 3. And if you're saying, why do we always got to flip to Romans? Romans is just a very clear picture of the gospel. From beginning to end, it, it displays for us what it means to be dead in sin and brought alive together with Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You get that? So we're not saved by the law. We're saved by a righteousness that came apart from the law. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. you get that? So righteousness of God has been made known to us apart from the law, so it has to be made known through another. It's Jesus, right? This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus for all who believe. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And just in case you think that you have some extra set of specialness, he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are hopeless. But those who trust are justified by His grace as a what? A gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are saved through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, so let's, let's pause for a second. So the righteousness of God is made known apart from the law, and it comes through Jesus. All have sinned and are completely hopeless, but those who trust in Him are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. We know through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the death of Christ, through the blood of Christ, is where we receive redemption. How do we get to that point? God put him forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice. By his blood, so that we may receive him by faith. Why? To show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That pretty much debunks all those ways of thinking that say we can work our way to God. He just said you can't do it. Verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? In other words, are are there... Those who have been set apart as the nation of Israel who are the only ones who are to receive salvation is not the people of circumcision the only ones who will receive? No. Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. We don't have a God for the Jews, then a God for the Gentiles, and then, you know, separate gods, we have one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Our salvation is a gift from God through Jesus. Completely hopeless on our own. So God puts forward His Son as the perfect, spotless Lamb sacrifice to take away the sin of the world you did nothing to earn your salvation I have done nothing to earn mine it was freely given through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus which is what Peter said therefore our faith is of equal standing there is no room for self-righteousness None. So when we see people who are walking around as Christians with their nose up in the air. At that point, we've missed the greatness and the glories of the gospel. Because what happens is we all of a sudden begin to think ourselves as our own saviors. As if we achieved salvation on our own. Because I did X or I do Y or I don't do Z. Our faith is of equal standing. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death, but God. Peter is writing to people who have already trusted in Christ And he is letting them know that it doesn't matter where you're from. Remember, this is likely the same audience. So these are Christians in the dispersion from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. All walks of life. Jews and Gentiles. Our faith is of equal standing. By the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Commenting on this. Passage. Matthew Harmon says. All believers stand on level ground. At the foot of the cross. There is no place. For sinful pride. With the body of Christ. Now. We are to stand firm. On the faith. We are. To fight for truth. But we never do so from a place of sinful pride. We do so out of place of extreme gratitude for the glories and the grace of God shown to us. So Peter's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. A church that is facing or at least will face false teachings. You know, we talked about this last week. It's not like false teachers have just kind of poofed out of nowhere. From the very beginning, people have twisted the teachings of God, twisted the words of God. The same reality that plagued this church that Peter is writing to is the same reality that plagues our church and the Christian church today. And it's that people use Scripture to support their twisted agendas. Or people, out of a lack of biblical understanding, teach whatever they want to, thinking it's Jesus. When some call it moral therapeutic deism. Meaning we have twisted Christianity into a religion about us, for us, that appeases us. Rather than asking the question, well, what does God say? What does God want? What does God approve of? So Peter is writing to Christians who are facing very much a similar reality that we are. To people who were denying the deity of Jesus. Who were saying Jesus is just a man. He wasn't really God. He's writing to people who would deny the virgin birth. He's writing to people who made religion about themselves, their idols, their idols. We see that every day in our culture. So we're facing a very same reality. so we ask the question, well why study something like this? Because we are no different than the people who were living in first century that Peter is writing to. So Peter writing to Christians who are facing or will face false teachings and he gives this greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is an actual very interesting greeting here. Grace comes from the Greek, peace comes from the Hebrew. It's not often you see a combination of these two. And what Peter is emphasizing to us, again, is to realize he's writing to both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians whose faith is of equal standing. One is not better because they hold to one thing and the other is not better because they hold to another. They are brought together under the name and on the faith of Jesus Christ, on the blood of Jesus Christ. We have a faith of equal standing. And what this does is this truth denounces any form of spiritual elitism. It debunks any oppression, oppressor ways of thought. We are all sinners, fallen short of the glory of God. And without the gift of God's salvation, we have absolutely no hope. So, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you do. None of those things have any effect on your faith. So, there is no room for spiritual elitism. There is one God, one Savior, one faith. If you will, flip over to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, so what he's saying is before Christ came, we were justified having faith in God, trusting God by keeping the law. But now, verse 25, now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come and he's given his life as a ransom for many, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So all that have trusted in Jesus are now under Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put On Christ. Verse 28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. We are of equal standing. There is no room for boasting. All Christians, all of those who have put their faith and their hope and their trust in Christ. Are on level ground. We have the same faith. We have the same Lord. So why use grace and peace? Well, grace speaks to the work of salvation in Christ. Jesus given as a gift by God. An undeserved salvation. That's what grace is. A gift that we do not deserve. And peace reminds us of how we as the people of God are to live. We live under the grace of God knowing that if we are the redeemed of God, if we've been saved by God, then it is a gracious gift of God so that none of us may boast, right? And because of that, we are to live in peace. And he's saying, may both, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you remember these gifts and may you acknowledge these gifts and may they be a bedrock for you. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So how am I going to remember the grace of God? How am I going to live peaceably with others? Because of the work of God? The knowledge of God. In other words, may we live as God's people by the grace of God, always remembering God's graciousness towards us. So it's by the grace of God that we are saved and it's by the grace of God that we are to live peaceably and can live peaceably as the people of God. But that's only able to be done in the knowledge of God. Again, remember Peter's writing to Christians who are facing or will face false teaching. So how can they do this? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of God as we account and recount God's goodness and graciousness towards us without forgetting the holiness of God. So as the people of God, we must study the word of God, we must know the word of God, we must internalize the word of God so that we can grow in that. So, so as I study the word of God, I'm growing in God, I'm growing in grace. Have you ever just had these seasons where you spend time reading the word and you're studying the word and you can just tell like your spiritual, your process of sanctification, your spiritual walk is just stronger and stronger and stronger But then something happens and you miss a day or two or 10 or 20. And all of a sudden you realize like tempers creeping back in. You're unhappy about more things. You're dissatisfied with life. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of God by studying the word of God. Other resources are great. when they're supplemental to the Word of God. We go to the Word first. We don't read all the other stuff and then go to the Word. We go to the Word and then we go to the other stuff. This is the only inerrant, infallible, inspired, sufficient book. It is the Word of God made alive for us. So we must, as the people of God, grow in the grace and the knowledge of God to remember his goodness, to remember his graciousness without forgetting his holiness so that we're ready. We're ready to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So if we are to be people who are deeply rooted in the word of God and if we are to be people who live passionately pursuing Jesus above all things, it starts with the Bible. It starts with the word. Once God has saved us, we want to know him and we want to trust him. And we do that by looking at the word of God and spending ample time in prayer. And here's the reality for us. As we study the word of God. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of God we're going to realize that we have to contend for the faith of God. You're, become, you're going to become more and more and more aware of things that just don't quite line up with Scripture. We can't forget the grace of God towards us. And we must remember to live peaceably as the people of God. As long as it's possible. Martin Luther is known for saying peace, if possible, truth at all costs. When we begin to question God and his word for the sake of others. We're missing it. We never step back from the word of God. So hopefully. As you progress through this year, as I progress through this year, we will all grow closer to the Lord in reading and studying of his word. And in so doing, we will remember that we have been graciously given the greatest gift of all, and that's the gift of salvation in Jesus. And because of that, we will live peaceably. We will try to bring others into the family of God. We will proclaim the goodness and the glories of God. And as we do that, we will come face to face with those who Romans 1 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And we must stand for the glory of God. Remember, in the very beginning, we said that all of our purpose in life is the glory of God. That's it. Like You can glorify God in what you do, in how you exist, how you raise your family, but the glory of God must be the basis for all things. And a church that does not stand firmly on the word of God, and protects the word of God, and defends the word of God, is a church that does not glorify God. A church that strays away from the realities of Scripture is a church that has fallen away. And so when Martin Luther says peace of possible truth at all costs, that's where something like that creeps in. But we can only defend the faith. We can only contend for the faith if we know the faith. And so I encourage you to study the word. I encourage you to read the word, to memorize the word, to work through these catechisms at home as an individual with your families. It's going to be hard. It's going to take time. You might have to give something up. But it gets a lot easier to do that when we remember what our ultimate purpose is. And that's the glory of God above all things. And you might say, yeah, but man, if I can't give up that. Like, I, that's the one part of my day that I just, I love. Where do we find our ultimate joy in life? When we glorify God. And so what you think is your greatest form of joy will be replaced by your truly greatest form of joy. And that's Jesus. And in a world and in a time where the majority are rejecting Christ and his word, God's people must be ready. We must be vigilant to study the word of God, and we must be passionate in proclaiming the word of God. In essence, we need to be people of the word. To be people who are deeply rooted in the word of God so that we may live passionately in pursuit of Jesus. And that begins with faith in Christ. So if you've never trusted in Christ, you need to trust in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you lead us throughout this year to be a people who are truly deeply rooted in your word. If we are to make any kind of lasting impact For the name of Christ, we do so through the word of God. So give us this deep passion. Make it a passion within us. Strip away the sinful passions and replace it with a passion for you and your word. So that you would receive glory. So that we would find joy. May come to know you. God, would you work in our hearts this morning. For those who have ever really truly trusted in Jesus for salvation. Who are still trying to do it their own way. To work their way there. God, would you just bring conviction to those individuals. So that they would come and say, I need Jesus. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, but we're just kind of living life on our own way, in our own terms. God, would you call us to repentance? Would you break our hearts? Would you bring us to tears? Would you crush us under the weight of your glory? So that we may see the goodness that you give in Christ and the forgiveness he offers. God, would this year be a year of just unmatched devotion to you? So that revival, true revival happens. That people come to faith. That you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.